the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. Obviously, in Exodus 12, we're talking Jews are living in Egypt. They are slaves in Egypt. So over their homes, as slaves, God gives this instruction. Take year-old male lambs or goats from the flock without defect. Slaughter them at twilight. That's between. That's literally between the evenings, between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. And then take some of the blood and sprinkle it over your doors. Mark your homes, your front door with the blood of the lamb. Today you'll join Jesus in his final days on earth, and he's celebrating Passover with his disciples. Pastor Gary will talk about this traditional gathering of the Jewish people and why its history points to Jesus himself. The blood painted on the doorpost to protect the Israelites long ago was from a sacrifice of a perfect lamb. And now Jesus is taking that role. He is the perfect lamb, the innocent son of God and His blood will protect everyone from death, if only they choose to accept it. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 22, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to be tonight. It begins by telling us um, that they are approaching the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, again, this is the last week of Jesus's life here before he goes to the cross. Uh, we are going to see him sharing this, what is commonly called the Last Supper, but it really is uh, the Passover meal. And we're going to talk about the Passover meal a bit and integrate it with why we call it the Last Supper today and why we still celebrate a portion of the Passover. But here we are, verse 1, it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Okay, that's insight for us because, again, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't believe he was Messiah. We're talking here about chief priests, teachers of the law. And so in the previous chapters, we talked about how they tried to trap him with questions. They tried to discredit him. They tried to make him look ridiculous. Jesus always answered perfectly with wisdom and clarity and put them in their place. And still, they want to get rid of him. They just want him dead. The problem is he's still popular for the moment, and they don't want to do anything that will cause the mob to turn on them. So they don't know how to quite get rid of Jesus. So they're looking for some way. And verse 3 then says that then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. 
They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And so here we have this passage where it talks about Satan entering Judas. So Judas becomes possessed by Satan. And look, you can, you can really only make the argument that in Scripture Judas was possessed by Satan. You can make the argument that the Antichrist will be possessed by Satan, at the very least manipulated and used by Satan. But um, sometimes we think about demonic possession as Satan doing it himself. Satan, you know, demons can possess people who don't know Christ. That's still a reality. We see it all through Scripture. That still is an unfortunate reality. But Satan himself, you know, it's, he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at all times. So typically, demonic possession is by demons in general, but rarely will Satan possess someone. But here's an example, because Satan himself wants to possess Judas to use him against the Messiah. In Revelation 12, it always talks about how the dragon, a reference to Satan, has always been perched, ready to destroy the child of the woman. Meaning that in essence, the ultimate uh, purpose that Satan is up to right now, since his rebellion from heaven, since his fall, is to do everything he can to thwart or to hinder the redemptive plan of God. Of course, he will not prevail, but he will do everything he can to try to disrupt that ultimate plan of redemption. So here he enters Judas. Now this gets into big theological controversy. You know, poor Judas, um, you know, that he just happened to be the guy Satan chose. And so what's Judas's destiny and did he have any say in this? What we have to understand is that in general, when you look at scripture in general, that especially, for example, when you talk about Pharaoh and the Egyptians and, and how, you know, it's, it talks about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh became a tool in the hand of God in the process of that whole, the series of plagues and everything related to the ultimate release of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And so it can cause some theological uh, consternation to talk about, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so it seems like that Pharaoh was just this innocent uh, object that ended up being used by God. But listen, the Bible also says in several examples throughout the Exodus account that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And what we come to realize when we kind of walk that fine line is that when you look at the example of Pharaoh and then you think here about the example of Judas, there's already something that they are predisposed to the ultimate plan here. So we shouldn't like look at them and think, oh, they were just these innocent people that then God allowed Satan to come into Judas. And, and how is that possible that he just took advantage of this innocent soul? The implication here is that Judas is not such an innocent soul. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us in John 12, verse 6, that he was a thief. Okay, And John 12, 6, it talks about how he helped himself to the money bag that was being used to help sustain the ministry of Jesus. So his heart, we get glimpses into Judas's heart in advance of this, that he wasn't this pristine guy. His heart was as pure as the driven snow, okay? He's already predisposed and open to the work of Satan in his own heart because he's not living wholeheartedly for the Lord. It's not like some innocent bystander and God says, you know what, I'm going to cause you to be possessed. You'll ultimately go to hell for this. Okay, look, this is God's ultimate purpose unfolding, and he will use people sometimes as instruments of his purpose, but don't look at them necessarily as these innocent people. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He was already in rebellion against God. 
and then God took advantage of that and hardened Pharaoh's heart. Judas, in a similar way, he's already in rebellion against the Lord. He's already a thief. He's already this conniving guy in the background. And God takes advantage of this to fulfill his purposes. But Judas is not this innocent bystander here. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 15, that Judas received 30 pieces of silver for his rebellion. That was the price of his betrayal. 30 pieces of silver, which was the, in that day was the going price of a slave. If you purchased a slave on the open market, 30 pieces of silver was the going rate. So Judas saw Jesus as nothing more than just somebody he could profit from at this point. And he goes then to the chief priest, hey, how can I partner with you in this? You know, why don't you, you can wire, put a wire on me. You know, if you want to do that, they'll not, they'll never, he'll never know. I'll go have conversation with you, all this kind of stuff, you know, right? So he's just, he's just in cahoots with these people who wanted, who wanted to kill Jesus. Gets 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal. He consented. It says in verse six, and then he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And then here we come now to this section of the Last Supper. In verse 7, it says, And and then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, that is Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now this must have been an interesting you know, thing. Jesus tells them in advance, this is what you're going to do. You listen up, listen very carefully, watch me, look right here. Listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go into Jerusalem, you're going to see a man carrying a water jar, which, by the way, was a signal right there. Typically in those days, the ladies carried the water jar. Okay, The guys were home with a remote and an easy chair, all right? Typically, the ladies were hauling the water, and they worked hard. And so he says, you're going to see a man carrying a water jar. That would have been unusual. So that was their first clue, because you might think when you read this, like well, there might have been hundreds of people carrying a water jar. Not typically. Typically in the day, the women would go haul the water from the, a pool or from a spring back home. To see a man carrying a water jar, they'd be like, okay, that must be the guy. So they go to the guy, say, hey. Teacher said, you got an upper room, Passover meal, all that deal. We need to have a place prepared. And it's already, you know, Jesus isn't obligated to tell us how all of this happened, but this is already divinely in place, okay, where this whole room is going to be set up in advance. It's already ready and, and waiting. And so Jesus says, go, find this man here, water jar, ask about the room, you know, and here's, and, and, they, and they're taken to this upper room. And so the disciples make preparation for the Passover. Okay, so let me pause here and just give a little bit of a background, some notes about Passover in general. Many of you know this because every time we approach uh, Easter, we talk about Passover. Passover on the Jewish calendar uh, often corresponds right around the time of our Easter celebration when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. On a Jewish calendar, Passover is from the 14th of Nisan to the 21st of Nisan. The whole thing ultimately called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so it covers a period of about eight days. Nisan on the Jewish calendar corresponds to our March or April. 
And, and so just quick background about Passover. Uh, the Passover had been practiced for about 1,400 years by the time of Christ. So that historically has been something the Jews had been doing by the time we read this story for about the last 1,400 years. Now, there was a break in Israel's history where they didn't practice the Passover. It's a low point in their history. But in general, for about the last 1,400 years, since the time of Moses, the Jews had been celebrating the Passover up until the day of Jesus. Now, they, they still do, okay? but we're talking up to this point, 1,400 years they've been practicing. It was an eight-day festival. Passover was the first day, and it was one day, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was seven days for a total of eight. The purpose of Passover was to commemorate God's miraculous deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And originally, the first Passover was celebrated with a meal and a mark. We'll talk about that. But subsequently, and including today, Jews only celebrate a Passover with a meal. Because the marking was only, was exclusively, the purpose was for that first Passover. And for that first Passover, I'm going to reference out of Exodus chapter 12. So you can turn there if you'd like or just listen. I'm going to read a few verses from Exodus 12, back in the second book of the Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, and gives us a little bit of a background here about the Passover. And so that we can understand what's going on here historically and practically. Uh, In Exodus chapter 12, uh, it tells us in verse 5 that the animals you choose, this had to do with the meal and the mark, because this is the original first Passover, Exodus 12, verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Okay, now this is what I mean by the the idea of mark. They had to mark their doors with the blood of the lamb in their homes. Now, obviously in Exodus 12, we're talking Jews are living in Egypt. They are slaves in Egypt. So over their homes as slaves, God gives this instruction. Take Year-old male lambs or goats from the flock without defect, slaughter them at twilight. That's between, that's literally between the evenings, between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. And then take some of the blood and sprinkle it over your doors. Mark your homes, your front door with the blood of the lamb. And then he says in verse 8, that same night they are to eat the meat. This is the meal now. Eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So that's where the word comes from. The Hebrew word is Pesach, and it literally means... Passover, that's a literal translation of Pesach. Passover what? Well, keep reading here, verse 12, still in Exodus 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood, the blood over your homes, will be a sign for you 
on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So most of you are familiar that in order for God to get Pharaoh to release the Jewish slaves, he brought a series of ten plagues, the tenth of which was the most severe, and it was the death of the firstborn. Every single of the ten plagues was a direct assault against one of the false Egyptian gods. These were not random. You know, when you think about, oh, the Nile turning to blood, what a random thing. No, 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 that's because one of the chief gods of the Egyptians was the god of the Nile. So God is addressing all these false gods because he wants them to see that they aren't real gods, that only he is. Because in the course of the whole series of plagues, even though it was horrific in some ways, ultimately God says, so that they, the Egyptians, will know that I am the Lord. This was not just a way to get the Jews out. That was certainly the main part of it. But in the process, God wanted the Egyptians to see that he was the true and living God. So over the series of these ten plagues, he addresses their false religious system. The tenth plague the death of the firstborn was because the firstborn of Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself was considered a god. They deified him. His firstborn son was also therefore considered a god. So God is showing that he's more powerful than their false idea of what God is. And the death of the firstborn, which included the death of Pharaoh's firstborn, was this very clear message that there is no true God except the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God then brings about the death of the firstborn, in advance, though, he tells the Israelites, mark your homes with the blood of the Lamb, and when I see that, I will pass over your home, and no death will come to the firstborn of your home. Thus, when the Jews started to celebrate this meal, it was an ongoing annual reminder that God had delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. Now, when the Jews would celebrate the Passover meal, so again, the mark was only for the original one. You mark the doorframe of your home with blood. Subsequent to that, it's always been preserved by a meal. When the Jews participate in the Passover meal, there were four cups of wine as part of the Passover meal. Even to this day, you go into a Jewish home where they celebrate Passover. They have four cups of wine, and these cups indicate something that also is relative to our story uh, back here in Luke's gospel. But here are the four cups. The first cup was called the cup of sanctification. And when they would lift up the cup in the course of the meal, which by the way, many of you are familiar with that the Passover meal was called the Seder. Seder just is actually a Greek word that means order. And there was an order to their meal. They had to, there was a certain regiment that they followed to remember the deliverance from Egypt. And the first cup that they would raise was the cup of sanctification. And when they would say, when they would lift up the cup of sanctification, they would say those words, we were led out. The second cup they would lift up was called the cup of deliverance. And when they lifted that cup, they would say, we were rescued. Both of those cups happened before they started eating the Passover meal. Then after supper, they had two more cups. By the end of the four cups, they're a little, you know, they're kind of three sheets to the wind. But, uh, (laughs) But cup number two, they'd lift up. It was called the cup of redemption. And when they would lift it up, they would say, we were redeemed. 
And the fourth cup was called the cup of praise. And when they would lift that up, and still do today, they say, we were accepted. Now, these four cups actually came from four I will statements that God made back in Exodus chapter 6. If you're still there in Exodus, go backwards to chapter 6. Just two verses I want to read from Exodus 6. And it's verses 6 and 7. And in God's instruction to Moses about the Passover, he says in Exodus 6, verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and, here's the first one, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. Okay, that's sanctification. I'm going to bring you out. You're devoted unto me. And that's when they say, we were let out, when they lift up that cup. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Here's cup number two. I will free you from being slaves to them. That's a cup of deliverance. So based on this passage, they lift the second cup, say we were rescued. And then he goes on in in, uh, verse six, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That's cup number three, the cup of redemption. And then verse seven, God says, and I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And that's the last cup, the cup of praise, the cup of where they say we were accepted, because God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. So based on, on those I will statements there in Exodus 6, the Jews have four cups of wine as part of the Passover. Now here's what is interesting here. Go back now to Luke chapter 22, because we can identify which cups Jesus raises and what he says in relation to these cups. Because now when you begin to realize that here they are celebrating this Passover meal, which the Jews have celebrated now up to this point for 1,400 years, give or take, Jesus is sharing this very ancient meal, but he's going to give it a new meaning. And it really is the ultimate meaning. Because what God intended 1,400 years before Christ was all to foreshadow the ultimate purpose of Jesus that he is now going to reveal to his disciples. Here's the true meaning of Passover. So in Luke 22, let's keep reading, verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup. Now, most Bible scholars believe this is the first cup because it just says quickly after taking the cup. So he's, this is before the meal starts because the context is he's saying to them, Hey, I'm happy to enjoy this Passover meal with you. I'm not going to enjoy it again until I come into the kingdom. Then he takes the cup. So this is probably more than likely cup number one. This is the cup of sanctification. And he says to them, and he gave thanks and he says, take this and divide it among you, like drink of it. Together, For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, now, this is not the communion cup yet, folks. This is before the meal. This is the first cup, cup of sanctification. In the text, and when you put all the Gospels together, there seems to be no mention of cup number two or cup number four, but I'll share in a minute why it is likely that there's a reference in Matthew to cup number four, but it's kind of a veiled reference. Anyhow, he goes on now, verse 19. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, now here's where he brings what we call communion or the Lord's Supper into this Passover meal, okay? He says, this is my body given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. So he takes the unleavened bread. Remember, this is a feast of unleavened bread. No yeast. The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ from his birth to his ministry, his death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But his death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know